Welcome, everybody, to episode 16 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm joined again this week by my colleague, Bill Roggio. Hi, everyone. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the editors of FDD's Long War Journal. Uh, most of you know by now or should know by now that we're basically nerds, or at least I describe myself as a nerd. I don't know if you do, Bill, but I, I'm, I'm definitely nerdy. Uh, I think after this many years, we can be considered CT nerds, for sure. Yeah, we're definitely nerds. Uh, at least I've, I've long identified myself as one because we're really get into the weeds on a lot of different topics. We're very interested in the details, the devil's often in the details. This week, we're going to talk about a couple different stories that rely heavily on details, one of which is the al-Qaeda's ongoing problems in Syria, including the latest round of infighting. This is something we've covered for years. We've got updates coming at Long War Journal in writing about this, but we're going to talk about it. Um, we were also going to talk about um, you know, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan. You're going to love this, Bill. I know you saw this right away. That he described, He described Osama bin Laden as a martyr or said that he had been martyred in Abbottabad. Isn't that wonderful? Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about, Bill's going to ask me some questions about my congressional testimony. It's the latest time I've testified before Congress and some some of the sort of takeaways from that. But we're going to start with the infighting in Syria. And Bill, you know, one of the reasons why we've refrained from talking about it to this point is because this it's is a very, very complicated, complicated case, case Maude. You know, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you, and uh, a lot of uh, strands to keep in my head, man. You know, a lot of strands in old duders head. So the latest round of infighting started earlier in June. On June 12th, five jihadi groups in Syria announced the formation of a new operations room named Stand Firm or Sobe Firm. I mean, how many of these operations rooms have there been built since all this? It's just crazy, right? It is. I mean, it's like, it seems like every other month a new operations room is creeping up. It gets a little boring after time. But I think it, it really demonstrates the um, shifting alliances in, in all of this in Syria. You need a you need a, like a baseball scorecard to keep up with this. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is definitely we've described this as Al Qaeda's most unstable uh, platform in the, in their insurgency warfare uh, sort of stratagem. I mean, it, you know, they're, they're waging insurgencies across several different theaters. Al Qaeda is, of course, ISIS is as well, and you know, Syria has been absolutely the most unstable of all those. They don't have a stable platform. They they have problems everywhere, but Syria is definitely the one, the place where they've had the most problems uh, outside of Iraq, of course, which they, they end up losing Al Qaeda in Iraq with the Islamic State of Iraq uh, split off to become its own so called caliphate. But Syria has just been a total mess from the beginning and continues to be a mess. And this latest operations room, the Stand Firm or Sobe Firm, uh, was formed on June 12th, or the announcement was on June 12th. And, and the leading party in it is a group named Huras al-Din, uh, which means the Guardians of the Religion Organization. This is a known al-Qaeda group. It's led by al-Qaeda veterans. It's been targeted on multiple occasions by the U.S. Uh, with, with drone strikes going after the leadership. And one of its senior leaders, really the, the, the most senior leader from its, since its founding, was a, a Syrian known as Abu Hamam al-Shami. He's also known as Farouk al-Suri. He gets the, the nom de guerre Farouk al-Suri because he was a trainer at al-Qaeda's Farouk camp in Afghanistan prior to 9-11. So this is another one of these guys that Bill and I always talk about. They, their, their bios go way back in time, uh, and they all of a sudden pop up. And Bill, you remember this guy popped up, I think it was in early 2014, when he pops up with a video discussing his efforts to broker a truce between what was then known as al-Nusra Front and uh, the Islamic State, it was the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria at the time, uh, and before, before it rebranded itself as Islamic State, period. 
Um, and he pops up with a video describing his efforts to broker this truce. I remember you and I were talking about the time, you know, who the heck is this guy? He just popped up out of nowhere. And all of a sudden it turns out that he's basically the equivalent of a general in Al Qaeda. Yep, absolutely. He's one of the unknown unknowns, as uh, Don Rumsfeld would say. I mean, you know, we we just we wonder how many guys like him are out there. And, uh, you know, his his credentials are are impressive. And it's uh, it's always fascinating to see these guys just pop up out of the ether. And then you're like, oh, here's another senior Al Qaeda leader that no one was talking about that never hit the radar until what? 20 plus years after he's hit the scene. Yeah. And you know, in this video, he pops up. I remember we wrote at the time we translated his video um, and his testimony. Um, and his, in his testimony, he was recounting how basically in 2013, 2013, he was involved in these efforts to broker a truce or a mediation effort between Al-Nusra and ISIS at the time. Um, and he explained that he personally met with Omar al-Shashani, another one of your favorites, Bill. Oh, former. yeah. That was, no, absolutely. I loved him. Um, we killed him too soon. No, I, I'm only kidding. Um, but yeah, he, you got to love it when the Chechen guy, the Georgian Chechen guys like him pop up in the theaters. That's when you know they meet when al-Qaeda means business. Yeah. And ISIS, of course, inherited Omar al-Shashani through in his lot with ISIS. That was a big win for them in the rivalry big, with al-Qaeda. In Syria, um, you know, because he he was somebody who commanded the loyalty of a lot of fighters, and um, I remember after the U.S. killed him, the, there were even Al Qaeda figures who were celebrating his death, even though it was at the hands of the uh, hands of the U.S., which shows how much they hated him, because they of course hate the U.S. more than anybody. But you know, they they were glad to get rid of him. But this is a guy who you know, Omar Shashani was was very important to ISIS. But Abu Hamam al Shami, he he survived. He's alive right now. I mean, we don't know how much longer. I'm sure the drones are hunting him too. They've been hunting several of his comrades, and he's leading Haras al-Din, the Guardians of the Religion Organization. He and his men were behind standing up this latest operations room. Now, um, when you talk about from, so from 2013 really to mid-2016, the main problems for al-Qaeda and the jihad in Syria were, of course, came from ISIS. Um, but from July 2016 on, the problems that Abu Hamam and his colleagues have been facing and critiquing really have come from their own comrades, their own brothers-in-arms. Um, and it started, of course, when Al Nusra Front, which was an official branch of Al Qaeda until July 2016, was rebranded by its leader Abu Mahad Muhammad Al Jalani as Jabhat Fat Al Sham, JFS, we'll call it. And Abu Hamam was one of the guys who very quickly objected to the rebranding. This disassociation from Al Qaeda. He released a handwritten letter online on Twitter and, and other social media channels, saying that he was no longer associated with the group and he was going to go his own way to pursue his own new projects. And, you know, this was sort of the first rumblings within Al-Qaeda world, as far as I can detect, uh, of disagreements over the moves uh, taken by Jelani and what was formerly known as Al-Nusra Front. Now, that wasn't the end of it, of course. Um, so after this letter announcing his resignation, Abu Imam continued to go his own way. He attracted some others to his, his ranks. Um, but Al-Nusra was rebranded a second time in early 2017 when it merged with several other factions to become a group known as Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, um, or HTS. The HTS coalition didn't last. Uh, ultimately, ended up breaking up. A couple of the parties that were founding parts of it or founding members of it broke away. And, of course, Abu Hamam ended up objecting, uh, objecting to what HTS was doing as well. And it turns out that in, in sort of the history that came out of all this, that um, – some Al-Qaeda senior leaders objected to Jelani's moves as well, including his rebranding as Jabhat Fat al-Sham and then as HTS. 
And these two leaders are um, Saif Al-Adl and Abu Muhammad al-Masri, both of whom are in Iran, which raises all sorts of problems, of course, for Al-Qaeda uh, in terms of uh, when they weigh on something publicly or when their, their, their role in this becomes public. Because if you're inside Iran, it raises all sorts of questions about that relationship, uh, which is a But Tom, we, we all know that Iran can't, could not possibly support Al-Qaeda in any way possible. No, and in fact, you got to be a neocon warmonger to point out to this relationship, even <laughs> though it was in the 9-11 Commission report district court filings and rulings. State designations under the Obama administration. We'll get into this. So we'll get, this is another one of those. We'll put the asterisks around this. We'll come back to this. Uh, but in any event, these two dudes are in uh, in Iran. They weighed in on it. They rejected it. And eventually this this led to sort of a, a breaking apart uh, you know, of HTS. The HTS coalition breaks apart. And as a result of this, uh, over the next year, really, from early 2017 to early 2018, new groups emerge, including Herseldine. Herseldine is one of the groups that, that ends up taking some fighters away from HTS and, and becomes its own sort of uh, deal. Now, as these problems are emerging, just to give you a sense of, this is one of the reasons why we've, we've put off talking about this. There have been several spasms or iterations of the infighting, even since the break between ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And one of them occurred in late 2017 when um, the infighting over the formation of HTS led to a nasty uh, bout of uh, infighting once again, or I'm sorry, nasty bout of, of confrontations and disagreements. Um, and in October 2017, Al-Qaeda's global network actually established a reconciliation initiative um, to basically get both sides to stand down. They wanted them to sort of uh, come together, come to terms and have some sort of accommodation. And Bill, I remember when I was documenting this at the time, it was interesting to watch all these parties weighed in on this. You had Shabab in Somalia, you had Iyad al-Ghali in, uh, in, in Mali, who's the head of the you know, Al-Qaeda's uh, branch in West Africa, AQIM. Um, you know, all these different parties around the globe came together to say, listen, we need a reconciliation initiative to, to settle this stuff down. Um, which shows that Al-Qaeda senior leadership and Al-Qaeda really threw its weight in behind this to try and, try and solve these problems that are ongoing. Um, now, when this happened, when this reconciliation effort uh, became public, what caught our attention was the identity of the main guy who was overseeing it. And it's Abu Abdel Karim al-Masri. Uh, that's his nom de guerre. He's an Egyptian, as his nom de guerre indicates. He also sometimes has a nom de guerre that ends with al-Garbi, which re- references the fact that he had spent quite a bit of time in the West. Uh, we're going to refer to him as Karim because that's how he's most commonly known. And jihadists have identified him as a member of Al-Qaeda's Shura Council. So this is an elite member of Al-Qaeda who's in Syria and who was involved and was overseeing these mediation efforts from late 2017 to early 2018. And I did an extensive report on Kareem's role in February 2019 at Long Word Journal, which you guys can read. Um, the title that was uh, Analysis, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham and Hurris al-Din Reach a New Accord. Um, and that was as of February 2019, they had... They had, I'm sorry, they reached an accord in early 2018. Um, I wrote that analysis in early 2019. Why? Well, because it turned out that another bout of infighting occurred in 2018. Right, Bill? Yeah. So, I mean, these right. guys just can't, 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 can't stop going at it. You know, uh, it's yeah. amazing to watch. So, they, they have a new bout of infighting in 2018. I write this report in 2019 doc- documenting Kareem's role. And lo and behold, you can follow that. I wrote that up in February 2019. You could see the U.S. State Department then, subsequently, months later in September 2019, offers a reward of up to $5 million for Kareem. And we have a write-up on that as well. Um, so 
basically, that's a, a preamble to say that none of this is new, right, Bill? I mean, this has been yeah. going on for a long time, for years now. It's why we describe this as Al-Qaeda's, the most unstable platform in Al-Qaeda's global insurgency plans. Um, yeah, it's it, it really is fascinating. And I can't stress enough, you know, you, the points that you made about how important that getting this uh, reconciliation between the two groups which both, you know, have senior Al Qaeda leaders within them. One is, you know, obviously or Harris al Dean being, you know, Al Qaeda's official representative. Very, very important. The the leaders that they've thrown at the at this problem, how all the branches weighed in, um, really shows that you know Al Qaeda needed and still needs to to resolve this problem. And it's it's difficult, you know. I think with Jelani and and probably some other key leaders. Within HTS, it's, it's hard to say how this is all going to plan out. Like you, you wonder if you're watching another Al Qaeda Islamic State problem emerging here. But the but it, it has never gotten to that point. It's it's well sort of part part and part of the problem there, Bill. Right, and you and I have talked about this. Right, Jelani's play. So Abu Muhammad Al Jelani. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. But HTS basically has banked on Turkey as their sort of yeah. guarantor in Idlib in northwestern Syria. And the problem is for Jelani is that his play is a purely local play. It's saying I got to hold on to power here locally and try and protect myself and protect my men and protect the people here in Idlib. It's a reasonable, pragmatic decision by him for a jihadi, you know. Um, and it's not totally outside the realm of Al Qaeda's discourse or what they find permissible. We've documented sure. how Al Qaeda, you know, is willing to do you know deals with apostate governments. They did a deal with Mauritania in, in, in Africa. They did a deal with. Uh, been willing to do stand down deals, uh, ceasefires with Pakistan. We've documented that from Bin Laden's files. We know they've had this accommodation with Iran uh, throughout the years, which again, controversial. People don't want to talk about it, but it's there. So this type of thing is not in and of itself out of out of bounds for Al Qaeda. But the problem is, how much do you rely on Turkey, right? And this is a purely local play. Like you know, the difference between here between ISIS and Al- the ISIS and Al Qaeda split is that ISIS was making a global play. They were saying we're the global caliphate. You know, Jelani's not saying that. Jelani's just basically saying, I'm the chieftain of Idlib, or he wants to be. That's one of the allegations against them. So I think that's a key distinction. This is not a a disagreement on a philosophy of how to wage jihad or where Syria ranks within the global jihad. It's they're they're dealing with the tactics of how do we fight day to day? How do we deal with countries like Turkey, things of that nature? That's there's no leadership recriminations here. Where you know, really personal. I mean, there are some disagreements. Obviously, oh, I think there, I think there are personal disagreements. Yeah, there yeah, are personal yeah, agreements, but it's yeah. not over over um, issues of of the strategy of the whole thing. It's again more of the tactics of how to handle these problems, these very difficult problems that exist in, within Syria. Yeah, I think that's largely true. Although I would say that there has been some tension over the idea of using Idlib as a launching pad for attacks internationally. Um, you know, Jelani in the past had cited Zawahiri's guidance to say, we're not going to do that right now. We're going to focus on the fight against the Assad regime and its allies in Syria. Others have sort of, you know, had there been rumblings of disagreements along those regards. But yeah, but, mo- most, but mostly it's it's about the fight in, in Idlib, about the fight in Syria and how to go about it. Yeah, but Tom, even that, on, on, on it's it's really on a tactical level. Just because they, they don't think it's a good idea at this time, it can hurt their efforts locally. You know, right. if... If there wasn't a problem with this drawing U.S. attention, et cetera, et cetera, then I don't. I really think that HTS would have any problems with using uh, Idlib as a, as a launch pad if they didn't feel it was. Uh, if they felt that that was going to benefit them, they definitely. Yeah, would. what I would say is I think that there are probably commanders and parts of HTS that have no problem with it for sure. Uh, 
um, you know, there, there is a little bit of a, a tension here in all this in terms of how the, between the local and global jihad, I think. Um, but um, it's not a tension that is unresolvable overall. Right. And and basically the, the problems here are the same problems that were faced by AQIM in Mali, where you could see they wanted to stand up a local group to basically serve as their face. That was on Sardine there during their the peak of their power in 2012, um, you know, where they were trying to form their nascent emirate, which of course uh, was toppled. Um, but in any event, you know, so there, there are these ongoing problems that, that Al-Qaeda has in waging jihad in Syria and elsewhere. And the Stand Firm Operations Room is the latest example of that. We know that um, in addition to Harris al-Din, which we mentioned, they had four other members, one of which was Ansar al-Din, which was a member of the original HTS coalition, but then later broke away and is now a member of Stand Firm. There's Ansar al-Islam. This group keeps popping up, right, Bill? Yeah, going way back in time. It won't die, boy. It won't die. Boy, oh boy. This thing has had so many different iterations uh, through the years. I mean, it, it's, it, its history stretches back to Iraq in 2001, and it's evolved through the years. It's now principally active in Syria, but there's a whole story there. There, which we're not going to, you know, get into today in detail. Um, I mean, real quick. I mean, Ansar Ansar al Islam had disagreements with the Al Qaeda in Iraq. It's a very similar type problem that we're seeing in Syria: disagreements on leadership and how to take it, and who was to represent Al Qaeda's uh, mission inside of of Iraq. And yet, it's still in the Al Qaeda sphere. Yeah, and you know, Ansar al Islam is one of those. If you look back to the Bin Laden files, you can see that Al Qaeda quite consciously decided to keep it apart from. Yes. You know, they 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 originally recommended that they join the Islamic State, but then there were some voices within Al Qaeda that said, actually, you know, if the Islamic State of Iraq fails, it's good to have them as an independent sort of effort uh, conduit for our efforts in Iraq. And so they were sort of fine with that. But it, you know, it's interesting because you know, Ansar al Islam, which went through several iterations, of course, through itself, its leadership was corresponding with AQSL, AQ senior leadership, and they were discussing and. Dis- and going through all these debates, as you mentioned, Bill, this sort of ongoing problems they have in these insurgencies, trying to figure out you know, how to manage that. Um, then there are two other groups as well. One was known as Al-Ansar Fighters Brigade, um, led by Abu Malik. And then there was this jihadi order or the jihad that was also part of this new coalition. Now, when this coalition was announced, I, I was going to write it up because there was there were so many state. There were a couple of different statements. One of the statements was, you know, previously Harris al-Din, you know, in one of these previous operations room, right, Bill? They had the <laughs> they had the incite the believers operations room yeah. or rouse the believers. And that was stood up in 2018, I believe. Um, and it existed until now. They've been they were advertising it all the way through early 2020. That coalition, that configuration announced that they're now going to support this new stand firm or be firm operations room. Um, and so, you know, there was there was a lot of stuff. But I sensed when this thing was announced, there's something coming. There was going to be a problem. Uh, you know, just from following this for so many years now, you know, when you know a lot of times when there's a new configuration, it it basically. Uh, shows that behind the scenes there's problems or tensions or there's disagreements. And that clearly was the case here because HTS very quickly arrested several noteworthy individuals. Um, one is this alleged British aid worker. I'm not prepared to go into a dossier on him right now, but uh, I think that I'm going to stress alleged aid worker. Um, there are uh, some other guys, one of whom was a military commander in the new operations room. There was also this Uzbeki uh, commander, Abu Salah, who was arrested. I think, Bill, I have to check this. I meant to check this before we went on. I think that he's even been implicated. Abu Salah al-Uzbeki has been implicated or his men have been implicated in that attack in Moscow several years ago. Which, I, I believe you're correct, Tom. But yeah, like I said, I, we'd have to check that. But yeah, that's a little that's a little murky, but that's an interesting thing. Um, and then as we went to as we went to record this, the two sides have apparently come to an agreement to stand down. 
Uh, you know, now look, that's not going to be the end of the story. We've been following this. Every time we write this up, we say they come to a reconciliation, but you know, this isn't the end of it. <laughs> and, and, but this isn't the end of it. Uh, so what are the big points of tension? Let's talk about this bill a little bit, because there's several points of tension here and all this, several parts of debate. And all it all goes to, you know, how, as you said, how they wage their insurgency or how they go about trying to accomplish their goals. Now, the goal in Syria was to dismantle the Assad regime, overthrow the Assad regime, defeat its allies, and lay the groundwork for a new Islamic emirate. Part of the problem is, of course, that the insurgency from the part of the problem from the jihadis' perspective—that is, not our perspective—from the jihadis' perspective is that their project, their, their emirate-building project, has been rolled back. So, whereas they once had a prolific insurgency throughout the country, really the um, Hayatullah al-Sham and these other groups. They've really been sort of cornered in Idlib. They don't have the prolific operations. They do have some operations elsewhere, but they're not nearly as prolific as they once were. The insurgency has been sort of systematically rolled back. Um, and that creates an existential crisis for them because, you know, basically the first step in what they want to do is they want to overthrow the Assad regime. And if you're an insurgent and you you find yourself on your back foot increasingly, um, that becomes a problem. And that's, of course, where Hayat Terrell Sham and Abu Muhammad al-Jalani, that's why they turn to Turkey to say, can you protect Idlib? Because you can see that there's these incursions by the Assad, Russia, and Iran coalition going into southern Idlib, where they want to overrun Idlib, they want to take it out. And it, it was for this reason, HCS turned to Erdogan and said, you know, can you can you bring your convoys in and, and set up uh, patrols and basically protect this? That creates problems though, right, Bill? I mean, it, from an insurgency perspective, that's not ideal. Yeah, absolutely. A major, major problem. Look, these, these jihadist groups, you know, they're predicated on, you know, uh, being against these states and whatnot. So it causes, you know, this it this is like sort of the uncompromising position of the Islamic State is we're going to fight, we'll fight every everyone who doesn't agree with us is an apostate, right? So th this draw this creates problems for local groups like HDS, right? They're, they're working, they're in some ways acting in principles that don't adhere to, to certain views of the global jihad. Um, and, you know, dealing with Turkey, it makes them dependent on Turkey in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of, you know, and these groups in the past have been burned by working with with states. Uh, Turkey has its own interests inside of of Syria. And what happens if Turkey just all the, if they become over reliant on Turkey and Turkey all of a sudden decides to drop their support where they left then. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a real key sticking point. I think it might be the key sticking point in all of this in this this big conflict between HDS and HAD. Yeah, no, it, it, and it, the way I put it, I've, I've struggled to explain this because it's not the case that Al-Qaeda isn't willing to have some dealings with Turkey. Right. Like you can see this in Bin Laden's writings. He said, you know, it's it, if you need to basically um, have dealings with Turkey, and when, this is back during the Islamic State of Iraq days, you know, basically – to a certain degree, you know, it was always it was always a calibration. You know, you can be against them or you can be with them. It's always weighing the political benefits or the benefits of the jihadis and dealing with them. It's how much are you dependent on them? And Samuel Erdi, a Jordanian who's uh, Samuel Erdi, who's a, a Jordanian who is a big time uh, cleric in formerly on Nusra Front's uh, chief Sharia uh, cleric. Now he's in Huras al-Din. He's one of the guys of the U.S. has released a bounty for him. He released a video in recent weeks just before the foundation of this new operations room, basically warning on warning jihadis about becoming too dependent on others. And he drew from the lectures of Abu, Abu Musab al-Suri, who I th we think is still imprisoned by the Assad regime, um, a key jihadi ideologue or intellectual um, that al-Qaeda at times relies on his writings and his teachings, although not wholly. 
Um, they've Abu Musab al Suri had a whole bunch of lectures back in the day, and he had part of his writings, his massive uh, magnum opus, which he wrote, in which part of it was basically jihadi shouldn't become too reliant on external actors, actors, apostate states, nations. And he cited the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood's experience with Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq. And Samuel already put this out because he was basically it was basically a thinly veiled critique of HDS, yes. and that gets to the point you're talking about, right, Bill? I mean, this is this yeah. is what this is all about. They they there's a tension there. Yeah, this. and I also think the the public uh, nature of that relationship is bother is troublesome as well. Good kind of likes to yeah. make a lot of these deals on the down low, right? Um, it's good point. Again, it's the the. They don't want to be perceived as being reliant on states, even if they're willing to have dealings with them. They, it, the perception of that really creates problems amongst the hardcore jihadists. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and, and you know, I mean, it's one of the things we'll talk about this in a second, but I actually just said this during congressional testimony earlier this week when we're recording this late in the week and then we release it early in the week. So this will be the week before the podcast comes out. I testified before Congress. And one of the things I pointed out was that, you know, look, there have been senior al-Qaeda operatives who have enjoyed the permissive attitude of Turkey and Erdogan's regime for years. And I always like to point out Mohammed Islambouli had a Facebook page in which he was, you know, documenting his travels around Istanbul at one point, you know, and he's been there. And and when one of his uh, one of his uh, comrades, Rifa Taha, Ahmed Musa actually traveled from Turkey into Idlib. He was clearly the U.S. was on him like, uh, you know, like glue, because as soon as he got into Idlib, he was droned to death. Um, so it shows you that these senior Al Qaeda guys at times, they they enjoy Turkish protection, de facto Turkish protection. Um, and so it, it is something, but it is something they want to keep in the shadows. I think it's exactly right. They don't want to announce it. They don't broadcast. And having Turkish convoys patrol around Idlib, it's kind of obvious, right, Bill? I mean, you can't you, get around that one. You, know? you so. just can't. Yeah, you, you just can't hide that sort of thing. It's not like receiving weapons or cash or, you know, safe haven where those things are murky. It's difficult to, you know, directly com- um, appoint to government complicity. But like you said, a, a Turkish convoy rolling around Id- Idlib, you can't hide that stuff. You see photographs of that day in and day out within in the media. Now, the, the another point of tension here, and this is an overarching point of tension, is that um, al-Qaeda senior leadership doesn't want the jihadis to try and hold on to territory right now. Ayman al-Zawahiri has released messages saying, you know, you're clinging to territory that's under the protection of Turkey. You know, this is not going to work. You know, the, basically, because the Assad regime hasn't been defeated. They're, you know, and Assad, bolstered by his allies in Iran and, and, and the Russians, um, have taken back ground steadily, and they're not on the verge of being toppled. And so basically I think Al-Qaeda senior leadership, whereas I think Jelani has a point, a pragmatic point in turning Turkey for protection. Al-Qaeda has a point, senior leadership has a point in saying, you know, don't try and hold on to territory at this, at this juncture because it's not stable. You're not gonna be able to hold on to it. You know, right, right, Bill? I mean, yeah, I mean, look, and this was a key criticism of the Islamic state, right? Uh, it, it wanted to declare a caliphate before it was ready to actually defend it. And I think, you know, this is a common theme that we see amongst al-Qaeda. You know, look, it, we've seen that with the writings with uh, Nasser al-Wahaji to, um, to Drukdel, AQIM's uh, chief, right? He talks about the problems of you know, of taking over territory inside of Yemen. This was back in 2015 or after the 2010-11 time period when AQAP ruled large areas of southern Yemen, but only held it for a year. Um, so we see this is this is definitely a constant theme within Al Qaeda. It's something they struggle with. 
And, um, you know, it, it's definitely another point of contention. And I, look, I, I actually think Al Qaeda probably, the senior leadership probably has the right take on this when, when you look back at this, um, or when you look at the, as this is developing. I think it's, it's just, a, and unless Turkey decides to do a full scale invasion of Idlib and plans on putting uh, larger mo- amounts of forces there, I think it's just a matter of time before the the Assad-Russia-Iran coalition rolls through. And speaking of that, I just another quick point I want to make that on that. You know, for all the uh, counterinsurgency theorists out there that'll say, you know, you can't be brutal to to win a an insurgency, to conduct a counterinsurgency, I'm sorry. Um, well, they've done pretty good so far. Um, you know, so there there is another model for that. I'm not saying I, I approve of it. I'm just saying that that's uh, that's something that does work, and I I have a feeling that that sooner or later is coming to Idlib. Yeah, I mean it's the most brutal version of warfare. I mean they they basically killed a, an awful lot of civilians to to suppress the insurgency in different areas. I mean again, I'm not approving of it either. But the point is that you know the the Assad Iran Russia coalition isn't trying to win hearts and minds. They're trying trying to kill kill their way out of it. Yeah, um, exactly. and again, there's no approval of that. Assad is Assad is still the number one butcher and monster of Syria and of the war. He's killed more people than anybody, and and he's somebody who's got American blood on his hands. We're no we're no fans of Assad, but the point is is that you know there are different ways to fight warfare, and it, the counterinsurgency model wasn't the U.S. adopted wasn't the only one. Yeah, look, and when people say, "Look, you can't kill your way out of a in, in a counterinsurgency." I say that's absolutely wrong. And again, I'm not endorsing this. I'm just, but the answer to that is sure you can. It just depends on how many people you're willing to kill. And, um, the Assad Russia Iran coalition is willing to kill a lot of people and it's brutal. Uh, it, it's horrific, but it can be effective. And it also raises another point here, which is that Turkey has its own uncomfortable relationship with Russia. Uh, you know, between the relationship of Erdogan and yes. Putin, which is another reason why the jihadis critique this because, or the, the those who disapprove of HTS's strategy and, and tactics um, critique this because they say, look, you know, you're drawing us into a situation in which Turkey and Russia are negotiating a ceasefire when neither one of them should be controlling the jihad or this or what's going on here. Um, you know, we want to break away from this international system. We want to topple it, overthrow it. And yet you're relying on it by basically having this relationship with Turkey. That's a, a valid critique from an ideologue standpoint, uh, from the standpoint of a jihadi who's basically looking at this to say, look, we're in this to overthrow the Westphalian system. We're not in this to, to sort of benefit from it. Right, right, right Bill? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly correct. Well said. Yeah. So um, so we, those are some of the problems here. And I, th- I think um, – I think there are personality disagreements here too in play. Jelani's been accused of being wanting to be the chieftain of Idlib. Um, you know, he's arrested. He's had people arrested. He sort of has a security detail. I, you and I marvel at the fact he's still alive. Uh, I, I right? do look, and, and I want to I want to clarify a statement when when I did say earlier that there isn't a person. I, what I was saying is they're not like cult, like Al Qaeda and the Islamic State, where it was like open recriminations of you know you're in a pot, you're you're a you're an apostate. You're not, you know, so I'll, you're not seeing that sort of uh, what you're seeing here is sort of a leadership dispute. And you're absolutely correct. And Jelani wants to be the chieftain of Idlib, as you stated. And, you know, this was the this was the um, the core of the problem that led to the to to the establishment of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Jelani didn't want to um, to be subjugated to to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and, you know, who wanted to lead 
both wanted to lead Al Qaeda in Iraq and Al Qaeda, or I'm sorry, or the Islamic State yeah. in Iraq well, and so the Islamic in Iraq State and Syria. Sure. And Syria, right? Like he wanted both. Jelani said, "No, Iraq is one theater, Syria is my theater," and that's that. You know, I think we're seeing the same sort of thing here. But Al Qaeda tends to be a lot more patient um, uh, on these things. I I'm going to go back to a, uh, an old dispute, and I think we discussed this the, the other day on the phone about Omar Hamami. He was an American in Shabab. Um, he, uh, Shabab, which of course is Al Qaeda's branch in, in East Africa and particularly in Somalia. And, you know, he held a somewhat, uh, senior role within Shabab. You would see him on videos and whatnot, but at some point he started pointing fingers and he got very mouthy on Twitter and Shabab was somewhat really, I thought very patient with him. He was, Kamami just kept trashing and trashing and tearing, attacking leadership. And they kept saying, hey, come on, let's, can't we, we just need to work this out. And then I think it was about 18 months later, Shabab just finally said, you know what, we had enough. And they wound up whacking him. I've been kind of waiting for that for, with Jelani, but um, I suspect it's not going to happen given the complexities of, of what is happening in Syria. I, I, I would, would be willing to bet that Al Qaeda wishes that a U.S. drone would find Jelani and just sort of solve their problem for it. But then again, who knows if that actually solves the problem? We don't know what the leadership under Jelani thinks, whether they whether they actually agree with that, whether they're looking to, you know, a full reconciliation. We don't really know that, but Jelani is certainly a powerful uh, personality within HTS and, and commands a following. So, you know, we don't really know how these things all shake out until he gets whacked. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of the big, um, I want to say mystery, although I guess it is mysterious to us, uh, those on the outside. You know, Al-Qaeda has not publicly disowned Jelani the way they did right. Baghdadi and the Islamic State of Iraq, ISIS. They didn't, they haven't issued a statement along those lines. Now, the, you know, one of the critiques of Jelani's moves is Zawahiri here at one point says, basically at HTS, you know, he's aiming at HTS, you can't fool America, you know, you're still going to be designated as a terrorist organization. Right. And in fact, HTS is still designated as an Al-Qaeda affiliate by the U.S., the United Nations, and Turkey itself, ironically. I mean, all the, the twists and all this, even as right. Turkey's trying to co-opt HTS or parts of HTS, they've still got it designated as a terrorist organization. Which is true. <laughs> Pakistan. Should, Excuse yeah, me. Well, well, no, we don't, don't, not yet. We got to get there. We got to get there. <laughs> you know, which again, which again, which again is, you know, that's, there's a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what haves you here, you know? Uh, so uh, a lot of strands keeping the old duder's head. Um, but the bottom line is that when you look at all this and you look at what's going on with Jelani and HTS and all stuff, it, you brought up, you know, we don't know what the really what the chain of command looks like, Bill. That's the point I think you're getting yeah. at, which is we don't really know what the heck yeah. Al Qaeda's chain of command looks like in Syria. You know, so folks, to keep in mind here, think about this going back way back in time. Al Qaeda has this strategy of these regional branches, and each regional branch is led by a emir that has a baya, an oath of allegiance to the head of Al Qaeda globally, and then the head of Al Qaeda globally, Zawahiri now has his baya to the head of the Taliban, which we've gone on and on about and. We'll probably come back to it at some point again because, you know, we just can't get away from it. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so another front was the regional branch in Syria or the Levant for Al-Qaeda for, you know, a couple of years. Um, and Jelani was the regional emir for Al-Qaeda in that scheme. But since the rebranding in July 2016 and the subsequent controversies that emerged, we don't really know what the heck Al-Qaeda's uh, organizational sort of hierarchy looks like inside Syria. We get guys that pop up, like I mentioned Kareem earlier, who's an Al-Qaeda Shura Council member. I mean, how the heck does he fit in all this? You know, you got guys who claim to be independent, 
like my favorite Abdullah Mohazni, the Saudi cleric. I love that guy because he claims to be independent. You know, he, he doesn't miss a meal either, by the way, while waging jihad. It's pretty good. You know, as a guy who was for, no, he for, doesn't. As a guy who was formerly pretty portly myself, I can say that. You know, he he's not he's not skipping the buffet line uh, during the jihad. That's for sure. Uh, but Mohazni, anyway, a Saudi. I mean, he claims to be independent. And, you know, we don't think he's independent. You know, we think there's all sorts of evidence that he isn't. But you have all these guys running around. What the heck does this scheme look like? One of the things I've urged when I talk to U.S. officials um, about all this, about Syria in particular, is I say, look, you got to do more to explain why you think HTS is still an affiliate of Al-Qaeda and what the heck the Al-Qaeda organizational structure looks like here. Because you have other parties running around too, right? The Turkestan Islamic Party, one of our favorites going back in time, clearly Al-Qaeda affiliated, despite what some uh, quote-unquote analysts would say. Uh, it's definitely Al Qaeda affiliated. That has a close relationship with HTS. Yet didn't join HTS. It's remaining on the outside. I mean, what the heck? I mean, this is just a nightmare. It's a, it's a very complicated you case. Bevy of Uzbek groups running around. That yeah, we had the, the caucus groups popped up in the middle of the yep. new infighting again. They they weighed in with their statements saying we want reconciliation. So you just got all this different stuff going on. Um, it's all a big big mess. But I think um, the, the point is going forward. I we're hoping to find out a little bit more about. Which raises another point. We're hoping to find a little bit more what's going on behind the scenes, right, Bill? I mean, it's just part of this. Part of the reason why we've been uncomfortable about talking about this is, and, and this is a point I think for all analysts, including ourselves and everybody else, there's a lot we're not seeing here, folks. There's a lot of private communications. There's a lot of backroom dealing, back, you know, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. We're only seeing what what spills out in the public, and some of that spills out in the public in official statements. Some of it spills out in unofficial statements. This great stuff has been leaked as a result of the infighting through the years. Stuff that we've learned from. You know, remember, Bill? I I, I wrote up those uh, succession chain letters that Al Qaeda Shura council members signed, where they said, you know, if Zawahiri is incapacitated or killed, here's his successor, and if that guy's incapacitated or killed, here's his successor. They had that at one point that came out as a result of previous yeah. rounds of infighting. That kind of intelligence, I think, that is is very necessary for piecing together what this whole thing looks like. But and, and Tom, you know, I do think what we do, what we do know, there's and I agree with you, there's a lot we don't know that Al Qaeda has committed several key leaderships to try to to get it wrap its hands around this jihad inside Syria. That, you know, we don't know how many others, you know, that exist that that aren't we aren't public figures right you know like kareem and, and and abu hamam and all the and all of those but we do know that they they you know the guys that have popped up are are key figures and it tells you i mean look i think syria's al-qaeda would love to make it it one of its key fronts it's the gateway to europe in a lot of respects and um you know a lot of uh to recruit from in the region and yet the fact that it's still struggling to wrap its hands around that problem tells you that there's just a, a lot of, you know, the problems that we had just, just discussed. A lot of those are just really difficult to deal with, you know? Yeah. And in addition to basically the fact that they're outmatched militarily by the Assad-Russia-Iran coalition, um, you also, I mean, and the complicated dealings with Turkey to try and counterbalance that. You also have the issue where the U.S. has been having these targeted drone strikes on key al-Qaeda personnel. Now, they've, they've targeted mainly guys within Harris al-Din or affiliated groups. There are senior figures there that are sort of have known al-Qaeda dossiers, known, known al-Qaeda veterans, and who are thought, at least according to U.S. sources and the U.S. military, thought to basically pose some threat to the West. Um, the interesting part about that dynamic is it has an effect on this rivalry, right, between Jelani and his critics, because the guys who have taken out are are usually a guys in the Al Qaeda world who who have the credentials and have the standing and probably have the power within jihadi circles to serve as effective counterweights to Jelani. And the U.S. has 
good reasons for wanting to take them out, but it also can alter the balance of power in this rivalry because there, there are all sorts of guys going back in time who we can point to. You remember Sanafi Al-Nazar we wrote up back in the days, you know, a third, I think he was a third cousin of Osama bin Laden who was the head of Al-Qaeda's victory committee, um, was stationed in Syria, you know, um, you have all sorts of guys who are parts of Al Qaeda's so-called Horasan group, which was that, that's a whole that's a whole other, that's another one of these things we can need to do a podcast. Well, I think on. a lot of these guys were part of that Horasan group. Is that yeah. right? I mean, that, yeah. that was so, always so, sort of my were. view so, on this. Some of them were. Some of them were. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, in, uh, that they just sort of yeah um, uh, rolled into HTS and and um, well, not and HTS, HTS, but they I'm rolled sorry, into Nozer. Nozer, yeah, Nozer. Yeah, they were in Nozer, okay. and. Yeah, Abu Faris al Suri. Remember, he was a guy who was a, a longtime companion of Osama bin Laden. He, you know, according to the biography Al Qaeda put out, he helped establish Lashkar-e Taiba. Remember that whole yep. chestnut? Yep. I mean, there was a whole story there. He was taken out. So you have these guys who are bigwigs. There's a whole series of them who, um, you know, it, it has an effect on this sort of intra jihadi fighting, which is difficult to sort of assess. But it definitely has an effect because these are guys who have known Al Qaeda pedigrees, and when they're taken off the battlefield, you know that probably lessens the ability of AQSL, Al Qaeda senior leadership, to, to exercise command and control. I'm not saying it ends it, but it definitely has to harm it, right? I mean, if they keep getting guys taken out, it hurts them. You know, absolutely. I mean, I would just argue we're not taking them out fast enough. The targeting isn't as robust. I mean, I think you could real you took out enough of these senior Al Qaeda representatives or whatever leaders, whatever however you want to describe them. You know, you can be you can be left with two jihadist groups that could be at its throat, and um, that's sort of been our complaint in a lot of these theaters. Is that yes, it's good to take out individual leaders, but but it's not being done quick enough to affect real real significant change. Because the reality is, is there very likely is someone um, that's able to step up and fill those shoes. But it it does have this effect. It, that's the uncertainty point. But it does have it does have it can have dramatic effects on chain of command, which is sort of what you no, know, absolutely. I, mean, I agree. I you, just I think it's not done. Take, it, it's not take, fast enough. If you took out yeah. like you know five of these senior Al Qaeda leaders that are pushing for reconciliation, um, you know, in a year instead, we seem to be planking at them like one a year, two. Yeah, a it's year. definitely slow pace. But the, the best yeah. case of the, for what I'm trying to say is basically Iraq, right? I mean, yeah. Abu Omar al Baghdadi and Abu Hamza al Muhajir, who led the Islamic State of Iraq, were killed in April 2010. You know, Abu Baker al Baghdadi, he was known to the U.S., but his importance within that structure wasn't known, and nobody could have foreseen at that time that he was going to rise to declare, to be, have his men declare him to be the caliph. Right. So, you know, that that created big problems for Al Qaeda. That's an example where the turnover of chain of command sort of definitely led to a, a loosening of control and the ability to influence events. And I think that's part of part of the benefits of these sort of high value targeting is Absolutely. that sort of that sort of thing, that sort of thing, you know, uh, but it, it doesn't end the insurgency footprint or what they're doing. I mean, it may have other effects over time. It's it's just it, what I'm saying is there could be effects here that we not really seeing yeah. right now, but that we're going to see, you know. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. Look, I think it's a, a net positive to go after him. Don't get me wrong. I just think I, I think that we'd see some very. I mean, we, there's already problems. Obviously, the the HTS HAD um, infighting or disagreements, however you want to put that. I just think if if we did some more significant targeting, you could really have these guys at at at, at each other's throats. If those sort of the the breaks, the guys that are pushing for reconciliation, the guys with the clout. Um, with the gravitas are taken out, then, you know, you'd really, you, I think you'd really have a, you could, it could create a situation for serious infighting between the two. Yeah. And one other example is Abu al-Khair al-Masri, who was the deputy Diamond al-Zawahiri. He was in Lib. 
He was killed in a drone strike using an R9X missile. Remember back in early 2017, I think it was. Was it early 2017 or 2018? I think it was early 2017. He's the one who, yeah, early 2017. He's the one who actually approved in an audio message on those are fronts disassociation yes. or rebranding as Jabat Fatal Sham in mid-2016. This is a guy who was, you know, second diamond Zawahiri or third, depending on who's who you ask in Al-Qaeda world, uh, at the time when he does this. So it shows that he approved of the rebranding of Al Nuzer Front. And taking a guy like him out, I mean, you know, he's somebody who obviously Jelani had to appeal to his authority and respect his authority since he relied on him. And by killing him, you probably, you know, have have an, an effect on all this and basically Al-Qaeda's ability to manage what's going on there. Now I still think that his decision to approve that rebranding probably was a mistake uh, on his part, a big management mistake by Al-Qaeda. But again, yeah. he, not having uh, by Al-Qaeda, not a mistake overall, but a mistake by Al-Qaeda uh, from their perspective. But having him taken out certainly hurts Al-Qaeda's ability to influence matters after the fact, You know, although they have other guys like Kareem and others in place. But now you know, let's transition here from Syria, which we're going to have to end up coming back to this because there's just so much going on. Uh, but we're going to talk, you know, one of the funniest things about all this, Bill, um, as, I'm, as we're talking about all this, I can't get away from it. You just, you know, HTS's relationship with Turkey, it really isn't all that different from the Taliban's relationship with Pakistan, right? I mean, there's, you know, it, it's the similar dynamic, right? In fact, you know, Abu Hamam al-Shami, the head of Harris al-Din, who we're talking about here, he's called on HTS to act like the Taliban in the past, you know, yeah. uh, while while trying to, to pretend that the Taliban isn't relying on on Pakistan, but yet this week we were rely we we received yet again as if we needed it powerful evidence that of course this relationship remains intact between the Pakistani state parts of it and the Taliban. You know, speaking before the Pakistan's uh, National Assembly, pa- Prime Minister Imran Khan, who's a very curious figure, uh, he said that Osama bin Laden had been martyred in Abbottabad, and he went on to criticize the U.S. for critiquing Pakistan. And Bill, you right away you wrote up. Um, the State Department released their country reports on terrorism for 2019, which always has interesting nuggets in it. And of course, why, why don't you explain what that had to say about Pakistan and its ongoing state sponsorship for the Taliban, Akhanis, and their like? Yeah, you, you know, that report is fantastic. Every year you get the, the State Department to basically say what we all know, but it's always great to see it in writing. And, um, you know, there's a we're obviously in this episode, we're going to focus on the, the state's report on Pakistan, um, which I, I, I think I could speak for you, Tom, when I say we, we believe that Pakistan is one of the biggest state sponsors of terrorism. Obviously, Iran um, is right next to it. And we would probably argue that Turkey is sort of going to be the, you know, the third, you know, the third leg of the tripod there. Um, it's work, so, working up, working its way up. For yeah, sure. it's, it's getting know, there. Their horse and their horse, their horse was in the back of the pack, but they're trying to, they're trying to make their way to the front, you know? Yeah. Yep. Quickly become, man, look, I mean, we all know, you know, Saudi Arabia's role and, but that's always a little bit more murky, a little bit more uh, behind the scenes, but what we can see, you know, the actual, you know, open supportive groups, uh, you know, and the Saudis aren't really good at any kind of uh, grill, supporting guerrilla operations. Yeah, they're, good at sp- yeah. they're good at spreading money around for extremism, yes. but they're not, they're not so good at, you know. Yeah, it's a different, different sort of support. Yeah. Very important. The ideological and the cash side of it. And I don't want to discount yeah, people, that. I, I, don't, I don't want to get off on a tangent of Saudi because yeah. it is complicated, like you said. But, you know, yes. one of the things people always overlook is that, and yeah, look, I'm not carrying water for the Saudis. You know, forget that. <sighs> uh, but but let me just say this. You know, after 9-11, people often forget that the first thing that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda tried to do after 9-11. They weren't immediately focused on Iraq, yeah, right? Because were, that was yeah. so, so something that fell into their lap. 
they were focused on Saudi Arabia. They wanted to overthrow the Saudi royals, you know. So that this is not a direct line here between the Saudi royals and Al Qaeda, saying that they're directly sponsoring Al Qaeda. Although there's dynastic infighting and all sorts of wheels within wheels there. And again, we're not going to get off on that. But but the bottom line is this is a, this is a complicated web. You have you know you have parts of Qatar is involved in this. You got yeah. you got you got a Kuwaiti network. I mean, it's just a nightmare. There's all these different different parts of this thing to keep track of, and we're not we're not going to weight one toward the other. But um, but anyway, so Turkey's relationship with uh, with HCS is very similar to the Taliban's relationship with Pakistan. Get into what this says. This report says about Pakistan yeah. still to this day in 2020, Bill. Yeah, I mean, and look, I'm going to shock everyone by saying this. Um, this is what the State Department had to say. Quote, Pakistan continued to serve as a safe haven for certain regionally focused terrorist groups. End quote. Um, look, again, we all know that Pakistan serves as a safe haven for the Afghan Taliban and a bevy of alphabet soup named groups like Lashkari Taiba, Jaish Muhammad, Harkat al Mujahideen. I could go on and on. Um, I, you know, I think that the one issue I would have with that, this characterization is, is by calling groups like the Taliban, Lashkari Taiba, and Jaish Muhammad. Um, those are the three that were explicitly mentioned. They also mentioned the Haqqani Network, which, of course, if you listen to Tom and, and read Tom and I, you'll know that that's just part of the Taliban. Um, but by calling them regionally focused, um, these groups have a, a key role in, 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 um, in supporting and, and allowing al-Qaeda to survive. Lashkari Taiba itself in, in publicly called for a global the establishment of a global caliphate. Um, you know, the Taliban, of course, supports Al Qaeda's uh, objectives. Um, it's, it shelters them. It allows Al Qaeda's senior leadership to maintain a, um, a, a footprint in the region, a very strong footprint, by the way. Um, and then, yeah, you know, I'm going to read the, the, and Tom, you have anything to say on that or? Yeah. Uh, the regionally focused thing stuck, stuck in my craw a little bit, yeah. uh, because, uh, you know, think about the Mumbai attacks that, yeah. um, in 2008 that, um, Lashkari Taiba, so that they would say these are regionally focused, but the guy who did the surveillance for those was David he Headley, yeah. right? Who was yep. traveling around the world and he was doing surveillance for Al Qaeda in Denmark and, and was arrested in Chicago. And I mean, how's that regionally focused? Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's not like there's an, an easy dividing line here between Lashkari Taiba's anti India operations and what's going on elsewhere. And the other example that popped to mind in all this was Rashid Raouf, one of our favorites, because remember, mm -hmm. there was always this back and forth whether the US got him or not, you know. But he was a, a principal player in Daishi Muhammad, one of the groups you mentioned, Bill. And what yeah. does he do? He goes on to be an external operations planner for Al Qaeda and is involved in plotting against the West and the UK and elsewhere. So, uh, you know, yeah, regionally focused for the most part, um, but don't, you know, describing that as such overall sort of gets you know, tries to get around some of the nastier or more complicated par parts of this problem, which is that they're not entirely regionally focused, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think this is a reason um, why, I mean, look, there's multiple reasons why. And I don't want to be overly critical of the State Department here, to be clear. No, it's there's a, a lot report, of good yeah. in this report. I just think that you, you get things like this because state, you know, if it admits that Pakistan is supporting groups that are part of the global jihad, then it puts pressure to to declare Pakistan the state to sponsor terrorism. Although I'd argue that that ship is long sailed and that's never going to happen from the U.S. government. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's just, you know, we'll quibble, you know, with some things in this report. But again, it's it's a net positive. Um, here's an, here's another quote we have uh, from this report. Um, I'm going to replace the, the abbreviated name groups here with their actual full names. Um, it goes, quote, 
it being Pakistan, allowed groups targeting Afghanistan, including the Afghan Taliban and, and affiliated Haqqani network, as well as groups targeting India, including Lashkar-e-Taiba and its affiliated front organization. And that would be, of course, Jamaat-e-Dawa and a host of other names and Jaish Muhammad to operate from its territory. You know, again, I'm going to point, you know, it's... They're, they're, they're describing- the wheel of jihad, Bill. The wheel of jihad. Right? Exactly. And I'm, yeah, we're going to get to that, right? Um, th- this, again, calling these groups India focused really does a disservice to uh, to those who want to understand this, right? Like, these groups operate in Afghanistan. As a matter of fact, like when Pakistan. When these attacks by groups like Lashkar-e Taiba and Jaish Muhammad and all these groups, this happened multiple times since we've started covering this. The Mumbai attack, that um, Pakistan or, or Jaish Muhammad's attack last year that killed uh, forty Pac- or uh, Indian police in Jammu, this Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. Pakistan has to dial down the violence from these groups, and what these groups do, and one of the things Pakistan does is it redirects these groups. You know, look, you can't fight in in against the Indian state right now. Things are a little too hot for us, guys. Go ahead and support the Taliban in Afghanistan. So there's a fo- – again, it's, it's not just India and it's not just Afghanistan. It, the fact that these groups support um, al-Qaeda and other global terrorist groups, their operations – you know, that makes them in my mind, and I, I think it's a, a reasonable way to look at this, that makes these groups that are part of Al-Qaeda's global network. And um, yeah, I mean, t- I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the problem is that too often, you know, it's one of the things we, we've just gone on about and documented through the years, too oftentimes these guys, these groups in Pakistan have served as feeder organizations for Al-Qaeda and as Jihad. And of course, ISIS came along and poached from them as well, you know. Um, and the, the milieu or the deep well of jihad, jihadism in Pakistan, this is why we're now calling it the wheel of jihad, because these the, the U.S. State Department is willing to say that that the Pakistani state supporting these groups and giving them safe harbor. The more the complicated part of this is when you when you go one notch over on the wheel, uh oh, you run into Al Qaeda, right? Because right. on the wheel, Al Qaeda is also allied with all these groups or has been in the past and continues to be with many of them to this day. And then, you know, yes, you have Pakistani Taliban as part of Al-Qaeda's network, which then, of course, turns back against the Pakistani state. Um, and we'll get to this in a second because one of the points that came up in the hearing I just testified at is what's going to happen with Pakistan going forward. But the, the calculation that pa- the Pakistani state has made is they can ride this tiger, that they can tame this, that they can, they can um, you know, use this the Taliban as a proxy force in Afghanistan to serve its needs. There's also an ideological convergence. Nobody wants to talk about parts of the ISI are ideologically invested in this, the, the Inter-services intelligence of Pakistan. That's a disturbing, spooky part of all this. Um, but you know, they also see the Taliban as a, serving its national interests as a counterweight to India. Um, you know, I think it's an open question whether they can ride this tiger indefinitely. You have you know one of the fastest growing nuclear arsenals on the planet inside Pakistan. And what happens when Afghanistan becomes the emirate again, or if it becomes the emirate again, with large portions of it? What do the jihadis do then? You think they're gonna? You really think they're just gonna say, "Oh, you know, I'm gonna stay on this side of the Duran line"? I don't think so. You know, they, they, they've, they've Al Qaeda has already got plans to 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 
to move forward from there. Uh, we could talk about that too. Yeah, Pakistan's uh, riding the tiger uh, allowed the creation of the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, which in turn killed tens of thousands of Pakistanis in terrorist attacks and open insurgency and open insurrection in northwestern Pakistan, as well as numerous terrorist attacks throughout the country. And, um, you know, uh, Pakistan turned its military had to turn around and defeat them, even though you had military commanders after Mumbai happened, still looking longingly looking back to these tap these Taliban uh, Pakistani Taliban commanders and calling them patriots, trying to get them to, you know, get back into the graces of the of the Pakistani establishment. Um, yeah, you know, that wheel of jihad in Pakistan keeps on turning. And at some point, I think you're right. It's, it's just going to it's going to bite the Pakistani state uh, too hard. You know, perhaps uh, in, in this uh, again, the state's uh, uh, 2019 terrorism report here on Pakistan, one of the most interesting quotes, it mentions uh, Jaish Muhammad Amir. Uh, Masood Azhar, as well as uh, Sajid Mir. He was a key Lashkar-e-Taiba commander who was the mastermind of the, two, of the November 2008 suicide assault in Mumbai, India that killed over 160 people. It shut the city down for, I believe it was somewhere two to three days. It was one of the most, uh, you know, they had multiple uh, suicide teams spreading out through the country, target hitting specific targets, a theater, a train station, a, a Jewish center, and all, all kind of, you know, horrific hotels and such. Um, here's the, the quote. It says, Azar and Mir, quote, are widely believed to reside in Pakistan under the protection of the state despite government denials, end quote. Yeah, we all know where they are. Everyone knows that they're there. And yet the Pakistan still holds on to them. Um, and it doesn't pay for it um, internationally. Is that India will complain about this. The U.S. will try to control Pakistan to turn them over or prosecute. And yet they still remain part of they, – they still have a spoke on the wheel of jihad. Um, this is all par for cor- for the course uh, for Pakistan. Again, we've known this type of ac- activity exists it's nice to see um, Pakistan – nice to see the State Department admit Pakistan's behavior in such a clearly defined language. You know, and based on all this, right, what you're seeing here, we're, we're still waiting for Pakistan to be designated as, as a state sponsor of terrorism. As uh, Zalmay Khalizad had stated, he recommended to Congress in uh, July 2016. Um, I actually had testified alongside of Khalizad when he had said that. Khalizad, of course, is the U.S. Special Representative – for um, Afghanistan reconciliation, uh, which means he's the guy who's in charge to negotiate the deal with the Taliban that will allow the U.S. He to brokered withdraw. he brokered the whitewash of the Taliban in Doha, exactly. Right? Yeah, which is exactly. all and, and absolved the, the Taliban of, for its oh, crimes, right. supporting Al Qaeda, and ex, uh, for, uh, before and after nine eleven. So all know, in the name of, of peace, which is you know, which is which gets you know. My, definitely draws my ire the fact that guys like him are able to sort of say that they're working in the, the service of peace and they claim the moral high ground and it's not really peace. You know, yeah. that's not what they're working for. It's not. And, you know, so, uh, you know, state uh, is praising and in this report, state praises Pakistan's for support of those U.S. Taliban negotiations. Yet, of course, this is extremely problematic, as we've described. Um, Pakistan's support for the Taliban, Lashkar-e Taiba, Jaish Muhammad, and all of the other terror groups that actually feeds the violence in Afghanistan, and it feeds the violence inside of Pakistan as well. Um, it's the wheel of jihad that keeps on ta- turning, and Pakistan keeps on feeding. Yeah, and you know the, the bottom line is when it comes to Afghanistan or the 9/11 wars, 
the big the big issue here is the U.S. never really had a solution for Pakistan. There was never any commitment to staying on this story and trying to find points of pressure to to, to break the wheel of jihad. Um, you know, there was this you know uh, short-lived after effort under uh, General McMaster when he was national security advisor for the Trump administration to sort of put pressure on Pakistan and call out their support of all this. You can see in the State Department they're calling out parts of it. But it was there's no there's no real next step to any of this, um, and so now we're left in a situation where the U.S. is withdrawing from Afghanistan and praising Pakistan as a partner for peace while doing so, even though if, if you just have half a brain cell, you know that Pakistan is the number one reason that that or one of the top reasons anyway that the war in Afghanistan has lasted as long as it did. Yeah, but we could only wonder what would have happened if Pakistan was a true partner in the war on terror, and if the U.S. had gone in hard in inside Afghanistan after after the Talib after the Taliban and Al Qaeda and all the other groups. Um, you know, we can't build a time machine and uh, you know reverse that course. Even if we did, I suspect Pakistan never really would have been a true partner in this war. It's too vested in groups like the Taliban. Um, so, you know, we'll, we're going to turn to um, uh, Tom's testi- testimony to Congress here. On June 24th, Tom testified before the House Committee on Homeland Security, the Subcommittee on uh, Intelligence and Counterterrorism. Tom was tasked with examining the threat from the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, as well as al-Qaeda. But uh, before we uh, take a quick look at your testimony, Tom, how many exactly how many times have you testified before Congress? I know it's a lot, and I, I stopped counting. Well, it's a lot. I don't, I don't, you know, listen, I hate this part of our, or what we do because it's all about self-promotion. This is why I don't even like being on Twitter, right? Because you get all these yeah, people pr- pr- promoting their own work and I just can't stand it, you know? Uh, but I, I know that that's where we're at, right? Everybody self-promotes now. Um, but, you know, I've testified a bunch of times. I've testified, this was actually the 21st time I've testified for Congress. I'm proud of that fact. Um, although, as I said at the outset of my testimony, oral testimony, to show you how things have changed, it was the first time, of course, that I testified virtually from my dining room. You know, so, <laughs> right. so, um, I did, by the way, for our listeners, Tom, were you wearing they, pants? Were you wearing pants? I was wearing jeans. I, I wore jeans. I wore jeans. <laughs> okay. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't be, I could not, I didn't want to disrespect Congress by wearing shorts or something like that, but I wore, <laughs> but I, I did wear jeans, uh, mainly cause the real reason why I wore jeans is because I've lost a lot of weight, uh, over the last, since last August. And basically none of the dress pants I have really fit anymore. So I have a pair of jeans. It's smaller that fit my reduced girth. And, uh, that's, that's, that's what I did. But, uh, you know, but I had my suit and tie, I had my ja- suit jacket and tie on, which sort of fit, um, you know, and it was, it was, it was, it was a good hearing, I would say overall, I think actually I wouldn't just say overall, it was a good hearing period. I think there was a lot of right questions. What I came away from, from this bill is that basically as you and I detected, you know, a few years ago, the writing was on the wall when it came to Afghanistan and I love wars in general, the American public's patience has sort of run out. The house of representatives patience has run out. There's really no by, there's really no, um, consensus or bipartisan support for keeping any of this really going. Uh, and listen, they have a lot of legitimate reasons for that. Um, we're, we're certainly sympathetic to a lot of those arguments and have made some of the arguments for anybody, in fact, about what's going on here. But on Afghanistan in particular, it was very clear from the hearing that at least everybody was participating in this hearing, both the members of Congress who were hearing our testimony and also the witnesses that time had run out. And, you know, one of the other witnesses was Mike Morell, the former acting director of the CIA. And I thought his testimony was very strong. Uh, Morell, Mike was very clear that he thought we're leaving Afghanistan. You and I have been saying that since 2018 that we're out of Afghanistan. It's coming one way or the other. Um, and I, I 
was taken, I, I appreciated his testimony and that he was very strong on saying, look, you got to show us evidence that the Taliban is going to break with Al-Qaeda because there's all these reasons I don't buy it. I don't buy that the Taliban is going to betray Al-Qaeda, which is what the Trump administration is pushing as part of its Doha deal. And he was he had a, a very strong argument, I thought, on all this, which echoed and mirrored what we've said. I'm sure he came to it independently, of, you know, what we've said as well. Um, you know, and he and he's but he also said the same thing that you and I have said too, Bill, along those lines, which is that we're not going to support a war if there's no political will or yeah. people don't want to be in it. I'm not, I don't want to be, you know, in the, in the, the game of, uh, justifying wars here in any, in any, in any stretch of imagination. I just don't want to whitewash the Taliban on the way out the door. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that has been our position all along in this, um, far be it from me to stand in the way of the, the will of the American public, the president of the United States and, and the Congress. I mean, if, if the, if the desire is to get out of Afghanistan, then by all means do it. Um, but let's be clear headed about what we're leaving behind and let's not whitewash the Taliban and its ties to Al Qaeda on the way out the door. That is the worst thing that we can do. Um, so Tom, let me, let me, te- let, me te- let me tease one thing right there, right? Yeah, so sure. Let's tease one thing we got coming because you and I got something coming. We're got coming for our ears. One of the reasons why Bill and I, even though you know we certainly think that the departure from Afghanistan is going to leave behind a mess and is going to be a boon for jihadism and is going to cause problems for the U.S. going forward, I, we both think that. Um, but one of the reasons why we are, at, on a good day, deeply ambivalent and on most days very jaded and cynical about all this is we're working on some translation right now. We're we working with a translator who's fluent in Urdu who's translating some Al-Qaeda articles detailing their uh, – Al-Qaeda's presence and support for the Taliban in the fight against ISIS in eastern Afghanistan. In fact, Al-Qaeda's played a prominent role, according to these accounts, in, in forming explosives and taking the fight to ISIS in eastern Afghanistan. We're going to talk about more of that than in the future, but here's, here's a problem with that. Many U.S. officials, or several key U.S. officials, I should say, have endorsed the idea that the Taliban is our ally against ISIS in Afghanistan. Well, guess what? If Al-Qaeda is helping the Taliban lead that charge against ISIS in Eastern Afghanistan, and we have many reasons, several reasons for thinking that's the case, then that means the U.S. is trying to turn al-Qaeda into a de facto ally in Afghanistan all these years after 9-11 when we originally got into the war to eject al-Qaeda from Afghanistan. This is deeply perverse and does not make any sense as an American. Uh, You know, some people are never Trump or never this or never that in terms of politics. We happen to be never al-Qaeda. That's what I always say. Uh, and you know this is this is doesn't make any sense to us. We're, we, I wanted to tease that bill because I think we're going to have more yeah. on that in, in the near future. But we don't want to say too much about it because we want to let Al Qaeda get everything out before we start writing about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, that was such a key point that both you and I decided to write about it on Long War Journal. It's very very rare that we both take up take an approach uh, on on a single issue. But uh, you know, I, I was looking at it from the the standpoint of uh, what Al Qaeda. You know, if the Taliban is saying Al Qaeda is not in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, what you're talking about is when the Taliban denied the the denial, right? That's what you're talking about. We we both, we both had our own takes on it. Yeah. But but that's fine. That's fine. But but that's what, but it's one of those stories that there, we both had articles on it. But the point is, is that that's one of those things where you could disprove it like 25 different ways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I, I sat down and wrote this congressional testimony. That's the problem I had, right? was like, okay, what do I want to say here? It's concise because there are 50 different things I could say about all this. And the point of my testimony was to, as you noted, was to highlight, the fact that Al Qaeda and ISIS both operate primarily as insurgents, and that terrorism is sort of a tactic they use, but they they still have this insurgency footprint, and that's why they, this the so called endless wars are are endless. That's why they're going. It's because these insurgencies 
um, keep fueling. These aren't just isolated terror cells. They have insurgencies that have sprouted up in several across different, several different countries, multiple countries, um, and that's part of the fuel for them to keep going. But I also wanted to highlight the fact that um, despite all the talk about endless wars, just look at the recent activity that America has taken against Al Qaeda figures. Just Al Qaeda figures across all these these countries. You're talking about from September 2019, June 2020. You're talking about Afghanistan. You're talking about Mali. You're talking about Yemen, Syria. You know, and elsewhere, you know, you, you know, you know, basically the U.S. is still hunting Al Qaeda globally after all these years. And, you know, President Trump gave this speech at the Military Academy at West Point uh, earlier this month. He spoke at the graduation. He talked about how we're ending the endless wars. But I just find that rhetoric to be uh, shallow. You know, I mean, the, the bottom line is, you know, that's a nice people, way to put it, Tom. Yeah, it's that I was looking for a way to say it without being a too polite way. Yes. Um, I mean, it's ignorant. It's also ignorant. I mean, it's just the thing is you can pull American forces out everywhere. We have a whole podcast on this that, you know, you can end the endless wars, but it's an endless jihad. They're going to keep fighting. And so the point is, you know, I, what I was I said this during the hearing, what I'm a little worried about is that there's no senior American leadership that's communicating the American public right now why it is that 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 the U.S. is doing this, why it is that the U.S. feels it's necessary to suppress these terrorist threats. And, and there's big questions about what that's going to look like going forward. You know, um, certainly some people would argue that hands off policy is best. Just let them go. I think we that argument was tried out with ISIS and didn't work. Um, uh, you, you can try that argument out. You know, I think that argument was tried out um, basically by default throughout the 1990s with minor exceptions with Al Qaeda in Afghanistan and didn't work. Um, we'll find out going forward here how much of a problem it is but the bottom line is it's easy to look at evidence to show the evidence that there's there are global threats to americans here yeah it, I, I couldn't agree with you you anymore uh to, so look tom's testimony it's a, it's a tour de force on the state of the jihad um we're going to publish it soon at the long war journal and i encourage everyone to go and read it if you want to understand the current state of play and the problems that we face uh, yeah you give tom's testimony a, a, a quick read I appreciate that, Bill, and we will publish that, and hopefully we can get the video, too, yeah. and the transcript. If you get the video, you can see I've slimmed down quite a yeah, bit, so yeah, it'll be great. All, my, all my detractors can, uh, can get, a, <laughs> get a kick out of that. Not quite as portly as I used to be. Um, in any event, Being I a middle-aged go, man is very difficult. Listen, hitting your 40s sucks, okay? Just sucks. And when you blow out your knees, your knee in your 40s, and you realize, hey, you know, I really don't want to carry this amount of weight anymore because I'd like to walk, that changes your life pretty quickly, you know? So... Uh, and that's what happened here. In any event, um, thank you all for listening again to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we'll see you again next week. 